The UK government are facing some difficult choices when deciding how to handle the criminal justice system during the COVID-19 epidemic. Should courts continue to sentence people to prison? How can we keep prisoners and staff safe? Should some prisoners be released and if so, who? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. The prison system in England and Wales currently holds more than 83,000 people. Due to the current crisis, many prisoners are confined to their cells for 23 hours a day and forced to share that space with another prisoner. There have been confirmed cases of prisoners testing positive for COVID-19 across at least 21 prisons in England and Wales. But of course, it's not just prisoners who are at risk. Prison staff across at least seven prisons have been tested positive and very swiftly around 3,500 prison staff were self-isolating. That's around 10% of the workforce, meaning that a normal prison regime was and is practically impossible. Visits from loved ones and legal advisers have been temporarily cancelled and Justice Secretary Robert Buckland said the virus poses an acute risk in prisons, many of which are overcrowded. One answer put forward has been to release prisoners early or temporarily. This would ease pressure on the prison estate, although it does raise questions for the management of probation in the community. At the heart of the issue is, as Mr Buckland puts it, the need to balance the protection of life with the need to protect the public. The Howard League for Penal Reform is a national charity, the oldest penal reform charity in the UK. Entirely independent of government funding, the Howard Lee campaign on a wide range of issues working towards a society with less crime, safer communities and fewer people in prison. Andrew Nielsen is the director of campaigns at the Howard League for Penal Reform. He was previously their press and communications manager and has also worked as a government press officer for seven years. He holds an MSc in voluntary sector management from Cass Business School and he joins me today. Andrew, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Okay, so at the top, let's just address why we need to be thinking about prisons during the pandemic at all. Some people are asking if self-isolation is best for those with the virus and social distancing is necessary to minimise the spread. Aren't a series of separate cells an ideal place for people to be? Well, um, they're not necessarily separate cells. We have an overcrowded prison system and many prisoners share a cell um, two people in a cell designed for one, or in some cases, three people in cells designed for two. Um, and while the prisoners might be in lockdown or, or locked up, um, the staff are not. And indeed, you need staff freely moving around a prison to ensure that people get fed, um, that purposeful activity of some description happens. Um, and staff and prisoners alike are vulnerable uh, to the infection. Um, and so ultimately, um, prisons are what in public health terms we'd call congregate settings. Um, and another public health term that's relevant here is that congregate settings uh, act as epidemiological pumps um, at, at times of, 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 of epidemics or indeed pandemic. Um, and what that means is that 
they drive the spread of disease among the wider community. And that's even if you stop visits um, and stop releases, because as I say, um, you have to have staff in the prison and that there is movement there. And we've seen um, what these um, congregate settings can do in terms of driving the infection elsewhere. We've seen explosive outbreaks uh, in such settings that act as preludes to wider infection. For example, this is not not in prisons, but in the cluster of ski chalets in Europe that that that, that seems to have possibly brought the virus to the UK, uh, where people were coming back from from that. Um, and prisons basically just um, are, are are that kind of setting, but ramped up by by a factor of about a hundred. Um, and that is the the, the 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 fear that they will they will sp- they, you know they will spread the infection in the community, but they will also um, become um, very difficult to manage if the infection takes hold in the prisons. Yes, really interesting that you make that comparison between the ski chalets, which have reportedly been linked to outbreaks in countries all over the world, and the potential for outbreaks in prisons with poorer conditions and more people is huge. So obviously, I want to ask you about how best we can think about avoiding that kind of situation. And it seems to me that there are two distinct aspects to the situation that we can discuss. The first would be how to reduce the number of people being sentenced into the prisons and the increase in prison populations. And then what do we do with people currently in prison right now? So I wonder if we can take the reducing the flow issue first and what that might mean for policing and trials and sentencing. And I know that we have a tendency here in England and Wales to give short sentences, those under one year. Are the Howard League advocating for a change in sentencing guidelines? We are. I mean, uh, uh, the interesting thing when you talk about short sentences is that the Ministry of Justice itself published research only last year suggesting how ineffective they were. And um, prior to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, um, we had David Gock as our Justice Secretary, and he was proposing to act on that research and um, introduce uh, measures to um, to restrict the handing out of short prison sentences. Um, so we think that that's the sort of thing that could uh, very easily be dusted down and, and revisited by the government now uh, as one way of uh, reducing the flow in, not least because it is prisoners on short sentences who most contribute to what we call the churn in prison um, because they only spend a few weeks inside. Um, they, they, you know, they, 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 um, they are the, the biggest group coming in and out of the prison system at any, one, any given moment. And they are also, of course, um, therefore, uh, the people who would be most likely uh, to either go into prison and infect other people or be infected and then come out into the community and infect other people. Uh, so it seems to us that that would be a key group um, that the government should be looking at when it thinks about how to reduce the flow of people into the prison system. And so how would that actually work in practice? So if, for example, they agreed, OK, we are not going to give any prison sentences under a year, what would that mean for the system in terms of managing offenders in the community? Well, it it depends. I mean, um, the the ideal situation would be um, 
and we're not in an ideal situation just to yeah. just to emphasize yeah, that but in you know in an ideal situation um i suppose the government uh, would have been looking certainly david gock was looking to replace the use of short prison sentences uh with um well uh, well funded and, and, and well designed uh, community interventions managed by the probation service um i don't think that the probation service is 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 in a place actually to deliver those kinds of community sentences right now, um, not least because face-to-face -face supervision, for example, is not something that would be recommended given the social distancing measures. Um, and probation staff uh, are also under pressure in terms of um, home working and people self-isolating because they have family members who are infected or they themselves are infected. Um, I think the reality here is that for at least for the... the the, um, the spell of the pandemic, um, it may be uh, more about um, actually trying to keep uh, people who might ordinarily trouble the criminal justice system out of the criminal justice system completely. Um, and already we are seeing quite a lot of courts business slowing down um, anyway. Um, and I suspect we will see um, policing um, slowing down um, insofar as uh, priorities will switch to, uh, and we've already seen this, you know, enforcing the social distancing um, and a stay-at-home um, side of things, um, that seems to be where a lot of police attention is lying. And we would suggest that the sorts of, um, you know, ultimately most uh, people who commit the sorts of crimes that re require short sentences are people with quite living quite chaotic lives. The offences themselves are not necessarily that serious. Um, I think that we, you know, we will probably see, um, uh, to some extent, uh, the forces of law and order turn something of a blind eye to things that ordinarily they would they would lean in on, um, because they are um, uh, diverted elsewhere. But at the same time, it's worth saying that. Uh, there's some evidence that um, certainly from the um, the SARS outbreak um, uh, of over ten years ago, that um, in uh, in Hong Kong, for example, uh, there was actually a drop uh, in crime um, during that pandemic, and indeed um, afterwards. I'm, I'm, my understanding, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that actually the the drops in crime, which I think were something in the region of ten to twenty percent. Uh, never actually went back up um, after afterwards. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, in a sense, what the what happens in terms of um, crime. I, I suspect that there will be crime, um, but a lot of it will be behind closed doors. Um, we've got quite a lot of concern about things like domestic violence with people who are um, locked up um, in their houses and the tensions that that creates. Um, but I think street crime may be less common out with the sort, you know, what we might see in terms of almost civil disobedience if the lockdown continues for a prolonged period and where you might start to see people trying to gather in large numbers and things like that. Yes, an interesting point is, well, I think a lot of people would agree with the police focusing in on certain kinds of crimes. There are also people who are definitely worried about the possible increase in criminalisation of things that would not normally be considered illegal at all, like being out when you shouldn't or congregating in groups. Do you foresee problems of increased criminalisation? Well, I mean, at the moment, I think the government is 
and the police you know we are seeing the police behaving in some some places in rather bizarre ways um in terms of how they're enforcing things so there was this the news story only yesterday about easter eggs being seen as non-essential items and uh um you know um, stories about um the police forces using drones to harass lone walkers and things like that now um ultimately though um they seem to be relying if they are acting they are relying on kind of on the spot fines rather than anything else and i think that um there's a lot of noise around what the police are doing but ultimately the last thing that they will be wanting to do is taking people into police custody police custody suites are congregate settings just like prisons also are problematic um so i i'm not i'm not convinced we will see um um problematic criminalization in that sense it does all depend on on really um how long the lockdown goes on for and whether people stay signed up to it in the way that generally people seem to be i think that we are helped in this country at least in that the government has taken a relatively liberal approach to the lockdown you know we we have we we're aware obviously of other european countries where for example you need to have a permit to leave the house and things like that at the moment we don't have that the parks are open most parks are open for example uh people are being encouraged to go out to exercise um i would hope that 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 balance between um restricting people's movement and um allowing some flexibility will remain in place over the coming weeks because i think it will make it more bearable for people but also of course it it, it lessens the the chance that um we start to see um the government clamping down and then criminal criminalization taking place no definitely and in terms of that balance within the criminal justice system do you think that, that trials will continue at all will there be a move towards virtual court hearings isn't is that something that the howard league would advocate for i know that there's been some previous research that suggests that defendants that appear via video link were more likely to be found guilty than those who were tried in person so i was just curious to know what the howard league position would be on that yeah we 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 are concerned about about the um the likelihood that things will go virtual in that way and as you say there is research that suggests that it can be problematic it's not our area of expertise um we have a sister organization transform justice which has done quite a lot of work around this and i would defer to penelope gibbs of transform justice on 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 this issue and she might be somebody you you might want to interview at some stage because i'm sure she'd have a lot to say about about this issue no I definitely have to agree that transform justice have done some really good work on that topic um I also want to ask you about recall to prison. So obviously this is something that can really drive an increase in a prison population. So I wondered if the Howard League have any specific recommendations linked to recall to prison. Yeah, I mean we 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 would we would strongly recommend that any decision about putting someone in in prison at this point in time. I mean whether it's recall or it's remand um or indeed sentencing um it 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 needs to have um certainly when we wrote to the secretary of state we talked about remand and we used the phrase anxious scrutiny you know that that um any any decision to remand somebody um to custody um and in that case of course when they've not been convicted of a crime you know really needs to be absolutely um thought about and revisited before it happens and i think recall is 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 similar to that 
uh, one of our one of the big problems with recall at the moment in, in England and Wales is is actually linked to the short prison sentences because um, some years ago now um, the ability to recall someone to prison on a short prison sentence, which wasn't possible, uh, was made possible, and so we've seen quite a lot of recalls um, through 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 um, through that. And we would again hope that if the government does take steps to stop. Um, people going in on short sentences, then that would at a stroke also stop quite a lot of the recalls. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think that would make a lot of sense. I think now if we can move on to having a chat about the current prison population and what they would look like to reduce that. So we have the situation of overcrowding. I know the government doesn't like that term and prefers the term crowding. Um, But the prison population is up at around 83,000, which is slightly below the official capacity, but we know that the uncrowded capacity of the prison system in England and Wales is around 75,000. And so there have been some calls to reduce the population to this uncrowded capacity at the very least. So what's the Howard League position on prison numbers? And if we do decide to release more prisoners, how do we decide who to release and who would be making those kind of decisions? Well, we, we, we have written um, to the Secretary of State and indeed we're in the process of an ongoing correspondence with the Ministry of Justice around this issue. But um, initially we suggested a range of measures, some of them incremental, some of them more dramatic. Um, I think we are moving to a point where the window of opportunity is is narrowing um, because there may be, be a situation where if the virus becomes rampant, in prisons, it will be very difficult uh, to release people. Um, and that's why it's so important that the, the government moves quickly. And unfortunately, they have not moved quickly so far. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that 55 prisoners are now confirmed having COVID-19 across 21 prisons. I think one of the hotspots is Wandsworth, which suggests that the situation in prison is mirroring the situation in the community, because we hear that London is ahead of the curve in terms of the rest of the country. Um, but actually the bigger concern at the moment, I think, is is what's happening with staff. So, um, you know, we're aware of at least 13 prison staff having tested positive, another four, I think, escort staff testing positive. Um, I've got slightly more up-to-date figures on how many staff are absent due to COVID-19, um, uh, and that's, but even that isn't that up to date because the figures from Wednesday of last week. But as, as of Wednesday of last week, uh, there were six thousand six hundred and forty-four prison staff absent. Now that represents almost twenty percent of the prison workforce, and by now it must be higher than that. Um, and that's where the real worry is because um, we get to the point where there aren't the staff to actually do simple things like feed people. Um, and that's when we, 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 we might see uh, real danger uh, in, in what happens. And I, I fear that if we do see deaths in prison, it won't be, you know, there will be deaths directly because of COVID-19. Uh, but we will also see deaths because of the situation that the virus has, has, has left the prison system in um, that aren't directly from infection, but because of uh, what could potentially happen if a disaster strikes and you know there are very few staff available, uh, and people are 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 are, are being uh, fatally neglected. So that that is a a big concern, and it's probably worth just you know re-emphasizing, of course, that prisons are full of vulnerable people. You know, 
There are a high number in England and Wales of elderly prisoners who we know are at particular risk. Um, there are something like 18,000 people amongst that 83,000 who, if they were in the community, uh, would be shielded. So that's the, the measure where people were asked, um, uh, largely elderly people are asked to spend uh, three months isolating themselves uh, so that they don't get the infection. Well, that's one about one in five of the prison population who would be in that situation if they were in the community, which really just underlines how vulnerable some people in prison are. No, definitely. And actually, you've preempted some of the questions that I wanted to ask you about, because um, specifically thinking about older prisoners, I know that we have over 1,700 over the age of 70 in prisons in England and Wales right now. And previous research has shown that people in prison tend to have poorer health conditions that age them to the equivalent of around 10 years older than people uh, on the outside. And so do you think that people over 60s or over 50s should be treated differently, perhaps prioritised for early release? Or do you think that will cause issues for the NHS? Well, I think the, 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 if, if, if the people that we're talking about get ill in prison, they will be a burden on the NHS one way or the other. And, um, um, so, yes, I do think that there are vulnerable groups that should be prioritised. Um, I think it's highly likely that we'll see an announcement shortly that um, pregnant women in prison will be released. Um, but I think um, elderly prisoners uh, who pro- almost certainly pose no threat to the public anyway because of their age... Uh, uh, could also be released. Um, at the moment, the government, unfortunately, has somewhat sat in its hands, so we're, we're not seeing any real um, action yet on reducing the prison population. It needs to happen soon, as I say, because the window of opportunity is narrowing, uh, and they only need to look at other countries. Indeed, another part of the UK, Northern Ireland, has just made a, an announcement about reducing its prison population. Um, but we've seen other countries, yes, um, doing uh, various uh, forms of executive release. Um, And um, in the United States, even, we've seen President Trump urging um, states, individual states, to introduce measures to free, for example, elderly prisoners. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before we see it here in the UK, but it needs to happen quickly because if, if, as I say, the, the window of opportunity is really narrowing and the staff situation in particular is very worrying. And when you hear people discussing the release of prisoners more readily than they usually would, or highlighting that there are people who have committed non-violent crimes that pose little to no risk to people in society, is it frustrating to you working for a, a penal reform charity that advocates for less people in prison in the first place, that it's taken a global pandemic for these points to become recognised? Or do you take the view that this could lead to more progressive policies in the long term? Well, I think we have to be very um, cautious as penal reformers um, at this time, and on one level. I mean, we have to urge radical action on the government, but I think we have to be cautious because we are um, people, and the Hard League certainly uh, is an organisation that, that believes there are too many people in prison all of the time. Um, you know, that, that um, in this country, in England and Wales, we've seen the prison population almost double over the last two and a half decades um, we are no more um, criminal than we were two and a half decades ago. Uh, there's no reason why the prison population should be as large as it is. Um, however, we should be cautious in that, you know, um, the reasons for reducing the prison population right now are to do with this virus. 
uh, and to do with the public health challenge. Um, and in a sense, we are the usual suspects and perhaps not, therefore, the best advocates for what needs to be done. Um, the best advocates are public health professionals, are those people who are talking to government right now and spelling out what the death toll, frankly, will be if, if radical steps aren't taken. Um, but what is true is, as penal reformers, we have to also recognise that there is an opportunity coming out of this. Um, there is an opportunity, potentially, to see a reduced prison population, and there is an opportunity to revisit some of the perennial discussions that we have about the ineffectiveness of short prison sentences, about whether um, elderly people um, should be incarcerated when they pose no threat to the public, uh, about why we insist on imprisoning women, and in particular mothers, when that does generational damage. Uh, these are all things that I think um, are arguments that we, we need to push and we will have when this is all over. Um, but at this point in time, I think we have to focus, um, as I say, on the immediate reason why the prison population has to be reduced, which is to do with the virus. Yes, we have well-rehearsed arguments that we can use to reassure people uh, that it is not going to lead to a crime spree when people are released. Um, but ultimately, um, the real driver behind uh, what needs to happen is, is, is this terrible pandemic which has gripped the world. I wanted to talk to you about collaboration, actually. So it's interesting that you mention about messaging coming from NHS staff. But before that, I just wanted to touch on one more point of specialism, as I know that the Howard League do a lot of campaign work around children in prison and young people in prison. So I was wondering, how does this intersect with the current crisis? Yeah, I mean, we're very, we, we, we have a legal team that represents young people, children and young people aged under 21. Um, and my colleagues in the legal team um, run an advice line, free and confidential, that, that young people and the people that work with them can ring. And I'm aware that, that we have had, uh, you know, quite a lot of calls from very anxious, worried young people and the relatives of young people. Um, and we have written a joint letter with a number of organisations to um, judges and youth court uh, magistrates, urging them not to send young people to prison at this time because of the pandemic. And we would hope um, to see... Um, some um, reduction again in, in, in numbers if, if the government uh, takes action amongst young people. The overcrowding issue is not so um, live in the youth justice estate as it is amongst uh, the adult male prisons. Um, but that isn't, uh, doesn't nonetheless um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't see um, steps taken to make a place like Felton, for example, which is a pretty dreadful prison, holding both children under the age of 18 and young adults, 18 to 21, that a prison like Feltham shouldn't have its numbers reduced. Yeah. And of course, it's not just the physical health people are worried about, but also the mental health of prisoners that people are rightly concerned with. Absolutely. I mean, prisons are in lockdown now. I mean, they, they, they were almost, you know, they weren't a million miles away from lockdown before the pandemic. Um, many prisoners spend the vast majority of their day locked in their cells doing nothing because we've seen issues around staff cuts, um, which meant that um, 
um, often that prisons would see themselves see um, themselves running reduced regimes. Um, and even though the government's done a lot around recruitment of prison staff in recent times, they have a retention problem. Um, I mean, prisons in the last few years have had record levels of self-harm, record levels of violence, both prisoner on prisoner and prisoner on staff. It's perhaps no surprise that it's hard to retain staff in that context. Um, but ultimately, we, you know, we have seen in that increase in self-harm that I mentioned, uh, uh, visible, very, very visible signs of how uh, the mental health of prisoners has deteriorated in recent years. And that will only get worse because of the pandemic and the further lockdown measures that are now in place, the restrictions on yeah, visits. Yeah, and on this important point about visits, we know that the United Nations minimum standards for treatment of prisoners, the Nelson Mandela rules, highlight that contact with the outside world is one of the basic elements of uh, treatment for prisoners. And we know in the UK, in England and Wales, we saw that the 2017 review by Lord Farmer found that close ties between prisoners and key family members can significantly reduce the risk of reoffending, um, as much as around 39% reduction of reoffending has been reported. Um, and in response, the government have talked about uh, promising to provide 900 secure phone handsets across 55 prisons as a way to maintain family contact. And, you know, especially now in this time of crisis, we, of course, want to support any version of maintaining that community contact. So I was wondering what you thought about that as a solution. Obviously, there are some concerns around the handset passing the virus between prisoners. But just more broadly, how do you think we can support mental health of prisoners and maintaining that family contact during this time of crisis? I've given you an incredibly well, we hard question there. And I'm not yeah, expecting I mean, we, a magic yeah. answer. I guess I'm just trying to put out there that it's a very difficult situation. It is. I mean, as soon as the lockdown took place across the community, I think it was inevitable that visits were were, were going to be stopped. And we understand that. Um, we were advocating for as long as possible that prisons kept visits going and were flexible about how they took place. And we would like to see uh, more use of technology, um, virtual visits and, and all that. Um, but we have to um, put against that um, what I mentioned earlier, which is just as of Wednesday last week, almost 20% of the prison workforce was absent um, for COVID-19 related reasons. Um, that's another reason, you know, we just, it's going to be extremely difficult for the prisons to even just operate the prison regime in, in, in the basics of, 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 of things like delivering food. So asking them, um, to um, maintain um, the sorts of family contact with the outside that prisoners would ordinarily get is going to be an immense challenge. One of the ways that that challenge could be made easier is by reducing the prison population, which brings us back to um, really what is the burning issue at this point in time, which is this narrowing window of opportunity that I mentioned that the government has to, has to act. And given this small window of opportunity, as you put it, how have you been approaching the government? How have you found collaboration uh, as a charity with other charities and NGOs and other specialists? Well, um, we are collaborating. Um, I can't say much in detail about um, how we're doing that at this point in time. We're in a very sensitive 
period um, in discussions with the government about what they need to do. Uh, but what I can say is that we are talking uh, to um, other NGOs, um, and we, as I say, we've 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 um, signed uh, we signed a, a joint letter to judges around ch- children um, um, recently. Um, we are talking to staff associations like the Prison Governors Association, uh, who have who have been put out some helpful statements about what they think needs to happen. Um, we are. Um, we are talking to the department itself um, and other agencies associated with the Ministry of Justice. Um, we're also, where we can, um, communicating with Downing Street because it may well be in the end that we need the Prime Minister uh, to back um, the sorts of radical measures that we think are needed to reduce the prison population. You know, politically difficult decisions um sometimes um go beyond even the secretary of state of a department um and and so we are where possible um feeding right into uh, the heart of of power in this government which is 10 downing street uh, so we are we are doing a lot behind the scenes um at this point in time uh, to try and get uh, the government to act decisively while this window of opportunity is still open uh, to reduce the prison population and make prisons safer uh, than they would otherwise be at this at this time of pandemic. Great, yeah, thank you. And just um, a, an open question to end on for you and for the Howard League: What would a successful impact in this situation look like? Difficult question. Um, well, I think at least we would we would want yes we would want to see the prison population, I think, reduced by at least around ten percent, which would bring it to uncrowded levels. Um, and if that happens, then we would like to think that that would reduce the amount of deaths and the overall human misery that the pandemic will cause behind bars otherwise. Um, in a sense, um, I don't want to think about what that would be compared against. You know, what would, what what would be the benchmark of not doing anything? Because I think it would be really, really disastrous. Um, but yes, hopefully we will see action from the government that that, that will reduce prison numbers um, by yes, at least I think about ten percent would be would 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 be a would be a, would be a marker. Um, given that what we know about the capacity in the system and what an uncrowded prison system would look like. Well, on that hopeful note, I think that's a good place to end. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Omar. Now, if people want to get in touch or support the important work that you're doing, how best is it for them to get in touch with you? Well, we are a membership organisation, so if anyone wants to join us... um, that would be great. And you can learn how to join us by visiting our website, which is www.howardleague.org. We are entirely independent of the government. We don't receive government funding. Um, so it, it is partly through the support of our members that we're able to do what we do. Brilliant. Andrew Nielsen from the Howard League, thank you so much. So that's the show. Not all of the pods are going to be linked to the coronavirus, but given its impact across all areas of life, many of them will be about how we can best get through this difficult time. 
So please just take a second to like and subscribe to the podcast. Um, it will really help other people find it and help to get these important messages from the experts out there. Thanks a lot.